as a cardiologist, I would recommend for women to breastfeed for the first year at least in looking at samples of kids who were raised on formula, kids who breastfed, and follow them decades later. In their 40s and 50s, that seems to be a variable that's cardioprotective. I mean, it's fascinating wow. when you think about it, right? So something your mom does when you're a neonate in the first two years of your life will impact you potentially having a heart attack or not when you're 50. Because there does seem to be a, a demonstrable difference in how kids who are breastfed metabolize and handle you know, certain lipids and lipid profiles and things like that. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. So I went and saw my OBGYN for a preconception visit, and overall, I was really impressed. She actually gave me an hour of her time, which I feel like is unheard of at an American hospital. So no shade to her, but I did find it funny that they gave me this little info packet with super basic do's and don'ts of pregnancy. A lot of it was like I said, very basic, like don't drink alcohol and don't smoke. The food section was decent, but also very generic advice, like make sure you eat your greens and eat whole foods and stay away from junk food. They didn't give much specific information about how to source high quality foods or what nutrients to look out for. And that's where you really have to do your own digging, i.e. what we do in this podcast, and where folks like Chef Doctor might come in. Your favorite chef cardiologist is back to answer all of your questions about food for pregnancy and fertility. He also shares some great practical tips for the kitchen. And if you haven't heard our episode on the Nova food classification, I'm going to link that in the show notes, as well as a cheat sheet on group one to group four foods. By the way, if you're interested in doing the DNA test that I mentioned, which is great for if you're looking to get pregnant or want to know about food sensitivities or just general health, I do recommend the one from Circle DNA. You can use my code Jane Zhang for a whopping 40% off. That's J-A-N-E-Z-H-A-N-G. And that's also in the show notes for you. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. We're all about sourcing high quality foods. So be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more content like this. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, on to the show. I was telling my husband, Ethan, that I'm having you back on. He's like, what is it, time number seven now? I'm like, I've lost track, <laughs> but I think that's a good thing. <laughs> I guess I'm the definition of a regular, but this is great because I feel like, you know, coming to see you is like going to Cheers, right? Like everybody knows my name and we just need a little theme song. <laughs> yes. Oh, a special Chef Dr. Mike theme song. I love it. There okay. you go. Well, I actually went out and got a DNA test done after we talked about nutrigenomics. Yeah. So there's a company called Circle DNA based out of Hong Kong, and they do this very thorough ancestry and health. And, you know, they test for all kinds of things. But I learned all these things about my nutrition and like what I should be watching out for. Turns out I'm at risk for obesity and breast cancer and sensitive to alcohol. So it was really good to see what genes they actually test for. That, yeah, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, for folks that may have already done something like that 23andMe, I think that's another popular one. You know, sometimes you can pay a little bit extra and they, they since they already have your DNA, they can go ahead and run some of those food 
identifiers, you know, genetic markers that that correlate with those things. And you know what I always caution people with because it's easy to get excited and kind of think about, oh, well, you know, these are my genetics, as if it's sort of something that's written in stone. But you know, one of the things that's that's really important when we talk about this is to realize that you know, it's a give and take. And so what we've learned is that our food and probably also through mechanisms that involve the gut microbiome, which you and I have talked a lot about, these can turn, you know, genes on and off. So whether things manifest or not, and how susceptible you are in these interactions, there's a lot at play there. You know, as a, as a physician, folks would come and say, well, gosh, you know, my dad had a heart attack, my mother had a heart attack, my two older brothers have a heart attack. It really doesn't matter what I do. You know, I'm going to have a heart attack as well. So I'm going to smoke and, you know, go through the drive through But but it, it really does matter a, a tremendous amount what we do and what we eat and, and some of these other things. That's a whole area that we call epigenetics, which is how our environment shapes who and, and, and what we are and our susceptibilities to things. I teach the class at the university and I was really amazed by how many of the students responded to some articles that I put in of something called the, the Dutch hunger winter because it was a unique time in history. So it is at the end of World War II and the German Nazis are kind of being beaten back. There was an area of the Dutch Netherlands where the Nazis sort of created a, str a stronghold, you know, as they were going back. But obviously, at the end of the war, things were very tight on anyone behind German lines. And so they ended up obviously feeding the German soldiers. And so many of the Dutch suffered basically a famine. And of interest, that time that it occurred lasted almost exactly nine months from start to finish, right, which has human gestation period. And so there was a unique opportunity to see the impact of this famine on pregnancy, on, on women. And so what they found as they followed the offspring for years and then decades later are very unique things, how what the mother suffered in the womb affected these kids for the rest of their lives in terms of risk for heart disease and certain cancers and how they handled lipids. Uh, there was an, an abnormally high rate of schizophrenia. So it was affecting their uh, brain development and then their psychiatric um, susceptibility, uh, we could say as well. And again, what's very fascinating with this is it only affected the kids in, in this particular way that were in the womb. So young people, you know, two, three, four, five-year-olds, obviously they suffered effects of famine, which we've seen before in other populations, but they didn't suffer the same effects that the children who were in utero, who, whose moms suffered the effects of famine at that time. And even more interestingly, some of these genetic changes that occurred, so certain genes were switched on, certain genes were switched off, dealing with the strife, uh, that they, they, the stress that they encountered in the womb, those genes were then passed to their offspring. So in other words, what somebody's grandmother suffered in terms of World War II and the famine manifested in the grandchildren generations later. So there's a generational linkage to epigenetic phenomena 
so it, it affects maybe not only just you, uh, obviously, as, as, a, as a woman who's going through pregnancy, then affecting your offspring, but can really affect generations. So that's a fascinating mm-hmm. example in time to study how diet, uh, in this case, an extreme you know, famine, affected generations down the road of children and then adults and then their children and 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 so on so once those genes get get turned on they can obviously stay on and become dominant be passed on or manifest in the right environment so it's a very fascinating uh bit there since you were talking uh, you know we're talking kind of about genetics and food and how all these things tie together and a great example where you know that impact was mediated through the environment less so than the pre-existing genetics That's so fascinating and such a rare opportunity to study pregnant women and impacts because you would never be able to set up something like that clinically. That's, you know, (laughs) ethics and all of that. There's a little thing called ethics there. Uh, But, you know, we we can also look at things from the other perspectives. There was a, a study done which showed, because we know and we tell women, hey, you know, we know that if you take... Uh, prenatal vitamins, which are rich in, in folic acid and obviously some other things, particularly during the first trimester, we're going to reduce the risk of certain types of birth defects, particularly the spinal neural tube or, or spinal type defects. But what was really unknown was, well, if women continue to take folic acid, you know, through the remainder of pregnancy, does that make any kind of difference? And long story short, what this study showed is that it did. When they looked at kids, and again, these aren't just newborns where you can see a birth defect, but they're talking about testing these kids, you know, at age six, seven, eight, so years down the line. Mothers who continue to take the prenatal vitamins, their kids seem to do better from a number of cognitive measures, kind of brain function, IQ measures. So it seemed again that certain genes were switched are switched on. And the caveat that that I always have with that is that we've actually learned something else that's very fascinating, which is these windows where food in particular can impact our genes. There do seem to be definite windows. So if the gene is turned on during that time, it may stay on for the rest of your life. But if it's not turned on during that time, then then it, it can't be turned on later. And that's probably a bit of an oversimplification because there are probably alternate pathways we just don't know of. But with our limited current knowledge investigating these sorts of fields, we can see that there's windows to turn things on or off turn them on for better or worse. And if you don't act in those windows of opportunity, then again, perhaps there is one later on, but perhaps not. That's one reason why the American Heart Association, you know, as a cardiologist, I would recommend for women to breastfeed, you know, for the first year at least. And the reason for that is what we know in looking at against samples of kids who are raised on formula, kids who are breastfed, and follow them decades later, is in their 40s and 50s, that seems to be a variable that's cardioprotective. I mean, it's fascinating when you think about it, right? So something your mom does when you're a neonate in the first two years of your life will impact you potentially having a heart attack or not when you're 50. Because there does seem to be a, a demonstrable difference in how kids who are breastfed 
metabolize and handle, you know, certain lipids and lipid profiles and things like that. It's this ongoing, always dynamic interchange between, you know, us and our environment and our genetics. And through these different pathways, like we said, through what your mom does, through what you eat, through the gut bacteria that have colonized and, and maybe changed as a result of where you are or what you eat. Going back to the, the time window you mentioned about, you know, getting in your folic acid, is there consensus around, you know, should you be taking folic acid or prenatals before you conceive and like in, in that conception period? Or is it really that first trimester and during pregnancy? Well, you know, I think one of the, the things about the prenatal vitamins is that, we don't really see a downside. So I think if you're actively involved in seeking conception, I would say, well, gosh, because you may not know for a week or two weeks or some people, obviously, even even longer, depending on the situation. So, you know, I don't think that there's a huge downside to taking that, you know, prenatal vitamin. Uh, now, a, a full disclosure, I'm not an OBGYN. So always, you know, check with your OBGYN. Uh, but, you know, the downside is obviously pretty, pretty low and the upside um, appears to be pretty high. So when we do a risk benefit analysis, I think it's something that, you know, people should certainly consider. And then I would always recommend, you know, just run it by your OBGYN and speak with them about that. So in that Dutch famine study, I mean, obviously they were malnourished and lacking a, a lot of nutrients, but did they look specifically at nutrients that they were missing or vitamins and, and how that contributed to either schizophrenia or other well, things? Well, yeah. So I, I don't think they had the opportunity to really look at, at specifics uh, because it was so severe. I mean, it was one of these, if you look at the the pictures, you see people dying of starvation, just falling down in the street. So it was a mm. severe stress. I think what's kind of interesting is the similarity that they had in terms of, you know, higher risk of schizophrenia, independent of what their background genetics were, higher risk of heart disease, you know, ex again, independent of, of what the, the baseline genetics are. And I think that sort of hits to the humanness of it, right? So no matter who you are, where you come from in that background, you know, we're all basically 98, 99% the same. So the stress in the womb of not having those nutrients in food made them more likely to be obese because then your body mm. goes into continuous food saver, food order mode. Mm. Your body thinks, wow, this is, um, and I'm oversimplifying the genetics folks, but, uh, you know, basically your body says, oh, wow, there's no food, you know, in this environment, you know, that I'm experiencing. And then when you're born, you're geared to survive. And so that means that, you know, you are very efficient in storing fat for lean times. And that's the environment that through the, the mother that you were introduced to 10,000 years ago when famine was obviously a much more common occurrence. What was a survival advantage in an environment where there's food 24-7? And not even to mention the ultra processed food available 24 seven mm -hmm. with high, you know, caloric density, high energy density. What was a survival advantage becomes a bit of an Achilles heel.
Yeah, it's like, what if the, what if in the Dutch famine, they had access to Coca-Cola and like chocolate bars? And I wonder what that would have done. But but let's go there with ultra processed foods, because obviously, this period of time during pregnancy and breastfeeding is very, very important in terms of the quality of food that you put into your body. How do ultra processed foods contribute in this stage of life? And we know that there's a ton of (laughs) There's a ton of things that it contributes to just in general, but why is it even more important to maybe avoid ultra processed foods? So one of the things I would even take a step back saying, you know, before someone is even pregnant. So when we look at some of the things that are associated with diets high in ultra processed food, we do find a correlation. Again, correlation is not causation, but there is a correlation with uh, PCO or polycystic ovary syndrome which can impact your ability to conceive, et cetera. So when we sort of take apart what ultra-processed foods are, it sort of can make sense. Uh, As we are a younger and a developing adult, when we consume lots of these things, for example, we've heard about some of these exposure to certain things like Roundup or glyphosate and potential role as hormone disruptors. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we eat foods that have been raised and produced in those manner, which, you know, by definition are ultra processed foods. Um, Now, ultra processed foods don't necessarily have to have those in them, but the foods that do, you know, are ultra processed foods. Those can affect us. And within the last, I think, five years or so, maybe pushing six, seven years, there was a congressional report on Roundup and glyphosate. And it was very fascinating because it showed that 90% of the American public has detectable levels of glyphosate in their blood. So Mm -hmm. if you think you're not eating it, I got news for you. You you probably are. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it's in there and there's exposure in, in lots of other ways as well. We can get things like bisphenols into our bloodstream in the way that ultra-processed foods are, foods are packaging. So there's leaching of nanoparticles, you know, from the, the actual packaging of this food to make them shelf-stable, etc., that can affect our health in ways. Eating ultra-processed foods also have been shown to be associated with lower sperm counts and lower sperm motility. There's lots of different mechanisms whereby ultra-processed foods can even impact the ability to procreate, to say nothing then upon the impact that what the mother eats then has an impact on the child. So there is some evidence and some people hypothesize that the gut microbiome actually may start to develop in utero. So there is a dependence, again, on the the mother's food and nutrients and what she supplies to develop that initial bacterial colonization within the baby. And then there's some thought that the importance of uh, going through the vaginal canal for the newborn is basically uh, serves as a method to inoculate that gut microbiome of the newborn as well. So again, if there's disbalance there because of the types of foods and things that are consumed, that can potentially um, affect newborns. And then we see that markers of ultra-processed food, we could look at glyphosate, for example, they then become expressed in the breast milk. So even if you're Mm -hmm. following the guidelines and giving the newborn breastfeeding, as would be recommended, 
if you're eating a diet very high in ultra processed foods, you may be affecting them and perhaps not giving your offspring, you know, the best opportunity. So ultra processed foods, which are obviously so pervasive, can have effects before pregnancy, during pregnancy, as we just talked about in the neonatal period. And then obviously to say nothing, you know, of what we feed our kids when they're young in those formative years and the brains are are processing. Now, ultra processed foods, to go off on a, a tad of a tangent, we saw a lot of them promulgate and come to prominence, you know, they sort of were developed in the 50s and 60s and with a cultural um, lieu and, and, and zeitgeist behind them. But they sort of really hit full strides in the 70s. And a, a lot of different reasons for that. Some of them were governmental regulations. Some of them were economic. It was in the 70s that high fructose corn syrup became uh, widely available to replace sugar as a sweetener. And so what had cost a fair amount to sweeten things was now dirt cheap uh, because of, of that type of sweetener. One of the other interesting backstories to that, though, is that at this time, cigarette manufacturers were looking to get out of that business. They could sense, you know, that that things were not going necessarily in their favor for the long haul. And what many people don't realize, and, and you can read about it, is that during this time from sort of the 70s through the early 90s, when there was such a push in ultra processed foods on our shelves, a lot of food producers were acquired by tobacco manufacturers. There you go. RJR Nabisco, you know, for example, RJR is a cigarette manufacturer. So you you have them using this playbook where they knew how to successfully advertise and sell things very efficiently now being applied to another commodity, which was ultra processed foods. And so there is sort of a, a, a parallel there. And I think I've shared with you, you could share with the, the listeners that we can read about it. Yeah, it was USA Today. It was USA and Today. Also, and Daily Mail as well. At Daily Mail. Yeah, that, that's one mm -hmm. there. Yeah, folks can read about that. So it's very interesting that strategy was used in many ways. We knew that smoking, despite trying to suppress that information for many years, impacted mothers and fetuses. Mm. Uh, you know, the when same did thing that seems information come out? Well, it came out probably from the 70s through the 90s, and that was part of the issue with cigarette manufacturers. It wasn't necessarily that there were untoward effects of cigarettes. I mean, this happens a lot with medications. That's how we learn of side effects. They're studied initially in very small populations. When it comes to things like foods, for example, we talk about glyphosate. Almost all those studies are done in very short time frame. Animal studies, you know, eight, 12 weeks, usually like mice or rats or things like that. You may not see long term effects. And the the long and short of it, the reality is they're not required because those types of studies are very expensive to do. Uh, you have to keep the animals for a very long time animals like people as they age become more susceptible so there's more sort of just environmental and genetic predispositions for things if it gets harder to sort out is this related to a food or is it just mm -hmm. the natural consequence of aging with these sorts of things and so it's, it's unfortunately it's just not required which is why we often have to look back and say wow now when we look in you know, over 25 years, we find that everybody who ate this or drank this has a, you know, tenfold increased risk of this disease, that disease. And that's actually what came out with cigarettes. It was such a 
anomalous number that you couldn't attribute it simply to chance, right? It stood out, you know, it's like 10, 50, you know, 100 times the risk when you engage in smoking of lung cancer, cardiovascular disease, that you kind of can't play it off. But the real problem was that the um, tobacco companies knew it. And they just buried the data because it was mm. a profitable business. Then they went through the machinations of, oh, well, you know, there's benefits to smoking. And, you know, it, it really doesn't hold when we do this or that. I mean, it's almost like phases of death. You know, it's like denial and then sort of slow acceptance. And then, you know, it's like, okay, we admit cigarettes are bad. But what came out was that they buried all the information, and that's where they became liable for it. It'd be very interesting to see if down the road, for example, studies on some of these things that you and I have talked about, like emulsifiers and the ultra-processing of food, glyphosate, the use of Roundup, did they know about it? And was there strong mm -hmm. data at the time? And that and that's where your liability, you know, seems to to come in. Finding out about it decades later when nobody knew or couldn't predict the future usually just right, results in a, a recall without the associated liabilities. Yeah, I think what's tough with the food industry is that there are so many potential different culprits and there's more players. Whereas with cigarettes, the solution is to ban cigarettes or to recommend not smoking. Whereas with the food, there's I mean, like there's shelves and shelves of stuff in grocery stores. And I think what's especially dangerous in this day and age is I was thinking about why do we not just call it junk food? Because traditionally we know junk food as like the chips and the soda and things like that. But I think today there's a lot of foods and brands that pose themselves as health foods that are in fact ultra processed, like, you know, all the frozen meals and the gluten-free breads and even the oat milks or like plant-based alternatives that pose themselves as healthy and sustainable, but in fact, they're ultra-processed. Right. And, and the advertising tricks that the food producers use, which is right out of that cigarette playbook, they're allowed. You know, so on the front of the package, for example, you things like made with oats, therefore you can advertise, hey, you know, part of a great food strategy to lower your cholesterol. And then they're allowed to extrapolate and say, well, if it contains oats, it may reduce, and again, the word may, reduce your risk of heart attack. And so people read these things that they're allowed to put on the front, you know, cholesterol free, may reduce your chance of heart disease and say, okay, this may not taste the greatest, but I'm going to eat healthy. When in fact, if we were looking at ultra-processed versus non-ultra-processed foods, they would be making a, you know, a very bad choice. And so that's sort of my one of my missions is to get out there and, and try to help change that perspective a little bit. So we're not so focused on this nutrient-centric obsession. It, it really hasn't served us well for the last you know, 50, 75 years. And that's not how foods work. The sheer number, to your point, right, we look maybe around 150 nutrients or generally what's followed. There's over 25,000 known compounds in foods. And so start thinking about how this reacts with that and the sheer number of things that we don't know, how they act in isolation. So certainly, you know, nutrition is valuable and there is something to be said about looking at something in a test tube and seeing how it works. But, you know, as a physician, that's not how our bodies work. We have to understand a new way, you know, of looking at food. We used to just look at it as fuel, right? 
this many calories, that many calories. But we know that a calorie is not a calorie. And there's a, a great article by the um, famous theoretical phys- physicist, uh, Richard Feynman, who actually wrote a paper on that. He's like, looking at a calorie as simply a calorie actually violates the second law of thermodynamics. There, there's science, you know, good science behind that. Now we're kind of in this nutrient centric, and I think we've lost the forest for the trees where we focus on this nutrient, that nutrient, is it plant-based, is it not? One of the great things about our approach is it's it's a simple yes or no answer. Is it ultra-processed or not? And not that you, you're you never going to eat ultra-processed food. I, I don't know in the way our society works that's feasible. But certainly when we think that 70% of the average American's diet is ultra-processed, we can do better. Oh, absolutely. Which is why it, it, I think it's kind of funny when it comes to pregnancy that there's so much focus on prenatal vitamins. And and I get the importance, right? Like we know that there's studies showing the importance of folic acid and things like that. But part of me is also like, well, if you eat a proper whole food diet and, and look out for these markers, I mean, shouldn't you just naturally be getting those nutrients? Like, where does folic acid actually come from in in terms of food sources? Oh, so we can find folate in in lots of things, like a a lot of different types of fruits and vegetables, particularly like, you know, green leafy vegetables. One of the consequences of having a diet that's so rich in ultra-processed foods is that diet's not a zero-sum game, right? You don't just necessarily eat more if you're eating more of something else something else is going to get pushed off the plate, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, though there's sort of the caricature of Americans just eating nonstop 24-7. <laughs> you know, actually, you can only eat so much. And so if you're eating fries and burgers all the time at the drive through then you're not eating something else. And that something else is often those things that are so important for us to consume for a number of reasons. That phenomenon, as it occurs, is something we call displacement. So one of the effects of the standard American diet, SAD, or modern Western diet, is this phenomenon of displacement, where when we eat more of these ultra-processed foods, these ready-to-go meals, like you're saying, grabbing those things at the drive-thru, heating something up in the microwave, and we're not fixing maybe something from scratch that has all those wholesome nutrients constructed the way nature has meant to deliver them to us and our gut bacteria, we've replace them with something else. That's where you start to see deficiency. And it's a very different phenomenon than the deficiency diseases of antiquity in the 1920s through the 1950s, where you might see something like scurvy because a sailor was out on a ship where there was no fresh fruit, right? No vitamin C to be able to get for months and months. The result of that was a deficiency of scurvy. Very different type of phenomenon uh, that, that we see today. One of the interesting things that comes to the forefront of that is the role of, of what we might call micronutrients or even bioactives, which we've talked about when we talked about nutrigenomics, right? And so these are things that aren't classic um, enzymes. They're not classic things that provide fuel in the terms of calories. They're not vitamins or cofactors, but they're things that are important for our health that can turn things on and off. And things that we might find in, for example, in fresh herbs and spices. When we're eating dead food, 
that hasn't, you know, had any of these types of flavorings or additives, we can start to miss out on those bioactives and those micronutrients, things where we don't need a lot of them. And in fact, a lot of it may potentially be, be toxic because food, like everything else, as we say in medicine, the poison's in the dose, right? So not enough of, of an antibiotic, it's, it's not going to help you. Too much of an antibiotic can, can cause you all sorts of problems and could potentially kill you. I mean, antibiotic, the word means against life. There's a reason for it. Right. So there's, there's always what we call this therapeutic window in medicine, which is why everything that we do in medicine, particularly pharmaceuticals, et cetera, have a risk and a reward. Is the reward for this person outweigh or at least reasonable in terms of the risk? Because there's always a risk there. With those types of foods, even if we need them in, in small amounts, we, we seriously could be missing out simply because we're just eating ultra-processed foods. So when you say dead versus live foods, when you say live foods, do you mean like probiotic foods, like things that are fermented or raw sure. milk? So, or so th those would be, but I, I would think like a salad. I've got my, my bread, you know, I'm making some baguettes today because it's a, a cold, rainy day in Montana. And so I've got my sourdough baguettes that, that are proofing and going to go into the, the oven. That's a natural ferment. But obviously, when I cook it, it's not a living food because the, the yeast have, have died. But, you know, it's sourdough starter, flour, water, salt. That's it. It's what I would call live food. And, and, and we've talked before about the Nova classification. The great thing about looking at ultra-processed foods through that lens of NOVA classification, though there's four NOVA classifications, I would call one through three are live foods, real foods, authentic mm -hmm. foods, wholesome foods. What I think all those uh, adjectives and descriptors are appropriate. You know, it's raw ingredients. So, for example, we might take milk. That would be a NOVA one. We alter it in a natural way to make a culinary ingredient like butter or cream. That would be a NOVA two. When I take that butter that I've had and put it on my bread, so I'm having bread and butter, that bread and butter would be what I call Nova 3 meal, right? That's a, that is a processed food. My people forget, right? I've thermally processed the bread. I've made the butter. So that is a processed food, but it's not an ultra processed food. And those are strictly Nova class four. So Nova one through three, good. Ultra processed food, Nova four, bad. And that's all you have to know. And that's, mm, that's all you okay. have to, that's the only way. And it's great because it's a simple binary choice. Is it ultra processed? Yes, no. All you need to know. I'm going to start to sprinkle in some listener questions here. Oh, great. Um, so we have a question from a mother who's breastfeeding her baby and she's always hungry. What are some foods that are high in energy that you, you would recommend that, you know, would keep you full? And also like any special foods you would recommend during the breastfeeding stage? One of the things I would do is a wide variety of foods would be great. And, and I'm not surprised that the mother is hungry, right? Because breastfeeding is really one of the most intense things in terms of our, our biological machinery. For a woman, you're literally feeding this little thing that, that depends on you. In other circumstances, we might call that thing a little parasite that just feeds on you <laughs> nonstop, <laughs> Yep, yep. Temporary <laughs> parasite. <laughs> Temporary. Well, wait till well, you have teenagers, Jay. Right, yeah, yeah. I guess for 18 years. 
And, you know, once you're a parent, you're always a parent. So, you know, yes, true. Uh, uh, but, you know, all kidding aside. So uh, definitely a, a variety of things, just fresh and as, as wholesome as you can. For all those reasons that we talked about, you know, you might get an energy boost from um, energy bar, for example. And we talked about those things that people often perceive that are very healthy. You know, I can use this as a supplement to my meal. But if you read that label, they're loaded with stuff uh, that they would classify them as ultra processed, you know, and, and avoiding those sorts of things. If you're someone who likes or enjoys seafood, that's a great thing because uh, a lot of those essential fatty acids that we want in part of our diet, they come from marine sources. Uh, if you're not a fan of seafood, which some people just don't like or have allergies to, for example, when you get lamb and other types of red meat, but lamb's a great example because if you look at New Zealand or Australian lamb, which is grass-raised, uh, on an open pasture, it's actually very high in, again, these uh, omega-3s that we're looking for. But when you look at a lot of what's offered in the United States, which is, you know, raised in unfortunate circumstances, to say the best, we find that those nutrients are completely lacking. While I said it's easy to look as like, yes, is it ultra-processed? No, is it not ultra-processed? We have to be a little bit more of a detective because it, it is challenging in that, you know, it's not even now just gosh, I'm going to get some fresh lamb. It's like, well, how is that raised? And, you know, is this an heirloom, you know, vegetable? Is this a heritage breed? Does that make a difference? So there are other considerations as well. But, you know, really sticking to fresh and, and wholesome sorts of things and avoiding those those cravings is really important. Let's also realize that those ultra-processed foods are engineered foods, right? The food matrix is broken down. Things are added back in and they're reconstructed. And they function like drugs in our brain in, in exactly the same way. And, and I think you have one of the, the articles that, that we've shared that talks about how addictive these are and actually, you know, functioning and essentially processed by our brain, our dopaminergic reward system in a way that's not dissimilar to opiates. And we talk about, God, this fentanyl crisis and this opioid, uh, opioid epidemic, which is horrible and, and all those statistics are right. But what does it say about us if our food is mimicking that? And now you know why you have cravings for certain things. So I would definitely encourage any breastfeeding mom to stay away from as much ultra-processed food as you can. I like that you mentioned like a lot of omegas and fatty acids and sources for that. What about uh, just straight up carbs, right? I know we talked about a lot of sugar being like not a good thing. Um, but I saw this recipe for um, someone made a video of this energy shake that they make for Ramadan, where they fast during the day and only eat at night. And I think it was like banana, peanut butter, a bunch of dates and milk and just this high energy, high sugar, high fat, like all whole foods. But would you rec recommend something like that for energy? So this, this is sort of a great example. So we could talk about some of those ingredients, you know, in individually. So you mentioned peanut butter, right? If you're making your own peanut butter by grinding up the peanuts and adding salt, and, and sometimes you can add a little bit of good peanut oil if, if you want, etc. That's 
that's a great ingredient. Commercial peanut butter is a pretty awful thing, loaded with mm. sugars and other right. sorts of Skippy. stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. And then to eat natural dates like much fruit or even dried fruit where that sugar is concentrated a little bit, that, that could be a great natural snack. A number of studies have shown, for example, diabetics who we worry about with the spikes in, in blood sugar, eating whole fruits seems to really help them. So, yes, mm. you're eating fruit like blueberries, apples, strawberries, et cetera, that have high natural sugars. But it gets back to, the again, the way that nature is packaging that for us. So it slows down because of the way the, the fructose is packaged. It's not all released in, in a huge bolus, and neither is, is the glucose. When we take something like a fruit or something like a date, and then we destroy that through putting it in a, in a blender. And we've destroyed that mm. natural packaging, the way that fruit comes, then, you know, it can alter its effect on us in, in terms of how, you know, we absorb certain things. So when people ask me about fruit smoothies or vegetable smoothies, I sort of go with a four or five, sometimes six to one ratio where, you know, don't use a lot of fruit, sweet fruits, because when you put that in there, you're, you know, essentially juicing them. And then that fructose is available in a fashion not dissimilar to high fructose corn syrup, right? So it mm. becomes this big bolus of, of fructose that you're taking in that maybe is not the, the best thing. Certainly, I know people, a lot of people swear by those things. And, and again, it, it depends if you're using yogurt, for example, uh, with a lot of prebiotics, you've got some vegetables incorporated in there. So it's not something that has a lot of, of natural sugars and you're using, you know, a, a little bit of dried fruit. That's very different than what they'll sell in the store as a fruit smoothie mm -hmm. or, you know, a health drink that's just loaded with lots of fruit because it appeals to us because it's very sweet on the palate. You know, it's sort right. of like a, a dessert, even within something that we would think, hey, you know, that's pretty straightforward. We're using natural, you know, ingredients. There's all these things that we have to look for. I often say that our, you know, forebearers, right, they were hunter gatherers and they every day was a challenge to go out and just find something to eat. The advantage they had, though, is they had an organic natural supermarket. Everything they got uh, wasn't <laughs> adulterated. We right. have to also be hunter gatherers. But instead of using, you know, tracking skills and being really good with a spear, you know, to hunt down this woolly mammoth, we have to use our brains and, and a knowledge base and be able to sort through what these food companies are kind of throwing at us and wade through the deception that comes with all the marketing that we've talked about and try to discern to the best of our ability, is this something I, I really want to eat? I was doing some grant work and, and I had to do some research. And it was very interesting because they had actually done a study on like what drives people to choose food, what makes us choose these things. And it, and it comes down to two things that so often, unfortunately, are competing, which is one, flavor. So no matter how you slice it, we love things that taste delicious, <laughs> yes. which as a chef is no surprise. That's why people go to a restaurant. They want to eat food that tastes good to them. But the nutritional slash health concerns of what we eat are also a major factor. So we have to address both of those um, unless we make a conscious decision that, you know, I'm an athlete and I'm training for X event. And so, you know, for X week, I'm going to eat this way or, you know, today's, 
you know, I'm going out and having birthday cake and a birthday celebration. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll worry about the rest of that tomorrow. Um, so we always want to sort of arm ourselves uh, with our right hand, left hand, delicious, you know, healthy, and, and try to sort through that information best we can. I uh, got to spend two weeks in China visiting family that I hadn't seen in over five years. And it was two weeks of so much eating. (laughs) And uh, we definitely had some things that were, you know, probably more on the ultra processed side. But I will say, I I think China in general, and especially my family, there's such an emphasis on food culture and, you know, eating fresh food that's local and regional using fresh ingredients. And I like that you brought up the fact that, you know, you need to kind of scrutinize how you yourself process the foods too. you know, maybe blending up the, the fruits is not the best way to consume that. And I noticed in China, there's a lot of like steaming, boiling things, stewing that kind of retains the moisture and I assume the nutrients of the food. Are there like general rules you would say in terms of like how we should be cooking our meats versus veggies that really help retain the nutrients? So stewing is is just a, a wonderful, you know, ancient method. Um, because you don't waste anything. So you get this rich, flavorful broth that, you know, and I don't know if it's still a craze, but right, you know, the the bone broth craze of of a few years ago, uh, how healthful it was. And and there's just no waste because everything's sort of in that one pot. So that's an ancient way, which turns out to be very healthful for us in terms of, you know, how to cook processed foods, fermenting, as a way to store foods through leaner times or when they're not in season that you brought up. And again, it turns out to have great benefits for us. Really the only kind of food method preparation technique that I don't do a lot of is deep frying. And not to say that you can't have it because, you know, I'll, I'll love a good tempura, you know, every now and then. Or, you know, if I happen to make it back over, you know, across the pond and I'm in the UK, a proper fish and chips. Yeah, I'm going to have some. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But if you look at sort of the average U.S. plate, and especially going through the fast food, right, every single item on the plate is is fried. So if mm-hmm. I add, do have a fried element, that's usually all there is in terms of getting the because we enjoy that you know that crunch uh another trick is is adding that sensation in different ways so like a a a kung pao chicken right does that through the addition of nuts where you get that textural crunch Mm. and this is kind of where i wear my chef's hat when we talk about you know cooking these things we, we need to realize that you know the textures is another element of cooking so obviously we're looking for flavors, you know, is it salty? Is it sweet? Is it uh, savory? Does it have umami, et cetera? Uh, but that's not where it ends. So there's textures, there's contrast. So you can contrast hot and cold together. And that adds another depth of that experience because it's all about that, that food experience that, w- that we have. The, the only thing I'd say is, you know, try to avoid deep frying for a number of reasons and people are like oh well you know we're going to deep fry and we're going to use canola oil and these unsaturated fats or polyunsaturated fats which you and i've talked about before which actually creates trans fats so anytime you take an unsaturated oil to high temperatures you're creating trans fats you're Mm -hmm. also creating species of polyunsaturated fats that we've never consumed before 
there's a lot of at the edge research kind of looking into that and potential health effects. And the long and short of it is we have no idea. There really hasn't been a driver for that. So other things like that you mentioned, braising, slow cooking. I know a lot of people like to slow cook. It's a great way to enhance flavors of things, put stuff in that one pot so it's not complicated. One thing that that I'll add and throw out there is sous vide, which immediately sounds like, oh, my God, that's French. And it sounds like it's going to be real complicated. But it's probably one of the easiest and most foolproof methods of, of cookery. Because you're putting it in a water bath that never gets higher than a certain temperature, it's very hard to overcook food. And so you can then make sort of these instant meals, throw it in an Instapot, for example. Don't get any reimbursements from folks, uh, but that's an example (laughs) or something equivalent. Set that temperature, you know, and come back when you're back from work and your meal's ready, things like that. So sous vide is, is a great way to cook. I recommend these vacuum sealers simply because when you can get things cheap and in season, which... Uh, I do a lot of during the spring and summer and, and fall season here in Montana. When you vacuum seal them, it'll keep them beautifully fresh for months and months with just cold storage, which in Montana this year is just putting it outside the door. Uh, so <laughs> right. We have a, a natural refrigerator. So uh, there, those are some sort of tips and tricks that you can use in terms of different types of techniques for folks that are very hesitant but like fish. And they're like, you know, cooking fish is so finicky and it, it's hard. It's either overcooked or so you can put in a sous vide, you know, set your temperature for that type of fish and just come back. And it's it's perfect. And if you leave it in an hour longer, it's not going to go bad. It'll still be perfect. So those are great. And, and then you can put things in like you put a little garlic or dill or teriyaki sauce or, your, you know, whatever you've got in that bag with it. And you only need a little um, because when you take the air out, it supercharges flavor delivery so you get this really flavorsome food as well so if if folks have are thinking about it or looking for a way that hey i can make things ahead of time and then save it again if you're making pasta i always vacuum seal you know my raviolis or individually portion it it's what we call it in the kitchen iqf individually quick frozen so we we just portion it out so i'm making some you know over the weekend i can iqf you know six different meals by putting you know four ounces of raviolis in these little vacuum packs and then you know i've got those for whenever i've had a bad day and things are running late you know into the boiling water five minutes later you got a delicious meal as if you had you know spent the day preparing it so those are some some strategies that that might be able to help i love that tip are you worried at all about the plastic leaching into the food when you heat it up uh no that that's that would be you know a potential concern if you had plastics that had some of those things the ones that i use are bpa free and so you could look for that you know be diligent are there potentially things in that plastic that we don't know about like it's possible unfortunately we never know what we don't know so right, <laughs> until right. we you find that out cost benefits you know, just, yeah, yeah. So it is it is a good way. And one of the things that, that's also great about that is it reduces food waste, which mm. sort of makes me feel good as a chef because I'm not wasting anything. And I'll, I'll throw in one final tip is to dehydrate things, which if you do a lot of it, you can get a dehydrator for about 100 bucks, and it'll serve you for years and years and years. 
but when you've got those carrot trimmings, when you, you know, got those bits of the onion that normally you throw away and say you're not composting or it's again wintertime and you're not going to use it anywhere, and you can put it in a dehydrator and you could take those dehydrated vegetables and put them in a pot of water and that's an instant start to your stock. So, you know, that's how we make stock in a restaurant. We're constantly going through things. So we're saving all that trim. And then, you know, it's stock day. You're pulling it out of the, the walk-in, putting it in the water, cooking it. And then you've got this incredible, you know, stock, um, mm. which you can also then vacuum seal, by the way. I've done this with gravies as well. So freeze it. Uh, so it's a solid. Then I weigh it out in like 250 gram portions or, you know, however you want to do it. And then you can vacuum seal it, put it back in the freezer. And so that way, when you want to make risotto, but you don't have stock, you just pull it out of your freezer and you've got a pre-measured, pre-done portion that you can just, you know, use right away. When you're doing that and making those homemade stocks, you're doing it with leftovers and water. So it's maybe, you know, 50 cents for like gallons look at the price next time you go to the store you know i know some celebrity versions that are you know 8 10 12 nowadays even 15 dollars or more a quart so you're really saving on your grocery bill you're cutting down food waste which around 30 percent of all the food bought in the united states winds up in a dump because it goes bad it's one of the reasons people don't like to buy vegetables because they end up going to waste. So if they if they start going south, you know, you can cut away the bad part, dehydrate. You can also do this in your oven on a weekend, put it on a tray, line it with parchment paper, set it for your lowest temperature in the oven. Usually that's around 180, 200. Leave it in there till it's dehydrated. And, you know, you've got these great things that you can use and, and you waste no food. I love these tips. I love that we can switch between Dr. Mike and Chef Mike <laughs> on these episodes. <laughs> we have a question from Chris about specific foods or nutrients for fertility and boosting fertility. Anything to share there other than avoiding ultra-processed foods? Right. So certainly, you know, in terms of male health, some of the myths that we might say about aphrodisiacs are actually true. Uh, if you look at certain types of seafood, like oysters, which are reputed to be an aphrodisiac, they also happen to be very rich in zinc. And zinc is one of those nutrients that's needed uh, for healthy sperm production. There's a little basis, in fact, for the, the myth that surrounds it. And we talked about just avoiding the ultra-processed foods, which as a group were associated with a decrease, you know, in sperm motility and absolute sperm count. So again, for the male side of the equation, that that is important. I always encourage, you know, people to, you know, explore and eat that wide variety of foods. That way you're picking up a, a, a lot of those sorts of things and can be sensitive to micronutrient, you know, compositions. Well, I mentioned zinc, selenium is another one, those sorts of things uh, that are often found in, in herbs and spices. Uh, and you don't need a lot, but we can become deficient in them that can manifest in, in a number of different ways. And some of those can affect repro reproduction. Are Brazil nuts something you recommend too? Yeah, nuts are great. All, okay. all sorts of nuts, great sources of the types of fats that we want. So for years, people were told, oh, you can't have nuts because they're so fatty and they've got these oils in them. And now we're all about, you know, got to eat lots of nuts because they're they're yep. great for you. <laughs> so any any of those natural nuts, and that, that's a great snack. And 
Uh, I love to use nuts in the right setting just because they, they can add a crunch element. So, you know, things from pie nuts and pestos to, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you know, Brazil nuts to snack on, uh, to peanuts as a crunch in a whole a variety of, you know, Asian cuisines, African cuisines, um, Southern U.S. cuisines as, as well can in- incorporate those uh, pistachios and, and a lot of Mediterranean uh, cuisines as well, walnuts uh, from different types of European cuisine. So, uh, yeah, definitely recommend lots and lots of nuts because there, there's always a flavor there for for, for someone. Hazelnuts, right? They're they're uh, mm-hmm. in fact part of the Celtic mythology. I think the uh, associated with wisdom, and it turns out that that they help with brain health because of of <laughs> the oils and fats we talk about. Huh, interesting. You had mentioned zinc and selenium. Would you say those are some nutrients that we commonly see deficiencies in? And what about magnesium? I hear about that a lot. Yeah, magnesium's uh, very important. One of the interesting things is that we often talk about potassium and how important it is for our health. And we know that one of our best sources of bioavailable potassium are fruits and vegetables. And so potassium is a natural vasodilator. So we talk about sodium, potassium, and we hear so much about salt and ultra-processed salt. Well, we have to realize, you know, one of the detriments of ultra-processed food is not just that it has lots of salt, but it has very little potassium. And because when we eat ultra-processed foods that have lots of sodium, and we already talked about we're displacing fruits and vegetables from our table, what that means is we change something called the sodium to potassium ratio. And so that starts to become much greater than one in the Western diet. What I'm getting to is that when we're deficient in magnesium, even when we eat lots of potassium, we can't absorb it. Uh, So we can be hypokalemic or have a blood level deficiency of potassium. So magnesium is one of those things that's, you know, extremely uh, important. And again, like potassium found in a wide variety of, of fruits and vegetables, And one of the other things that we've also learned is that we can't just take those missing nutrients and dump them all together back into ultra-processed foods and expect the same response because they're not packaged the way that nature delivers them. And so our body responds differently to them. And those are lessons. We'll save that for another time. But one of the reasons that for women taking calcium uh, just lots of calcium supplementation for osteoporosis prevention, which we thought would be a good idea, we actually ended up increasing the risk of heart attack by 10 to 30%. Oh, wow. Because the body can't is... handle just a big chunk of calcium all at once in the doses because we don't get that naturally. And so the body's mm. like, what is this? Is it okay to take extra calcium during pregnancy, though, to support? I would, I would definitely want to, to speak with your OBGYN about that. Okay. Again, multivi- uh, prenatals have you know those extra things. So before you just started taking extra supplements on top of a prenatal, you definitely mm-hmm. want to have a conversation with uh, your OBGYN, you know, about that for the reasons that we just mentioned. Looking at obviously older women, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, taking it for osteoporosis prevention. It turns out, long story short, this was something called the MESA study, MESA. What happened was that that calcium, instead of going to the bones, ended up going into the lining of the arteries and causing accelerated atherosclerosis. 
So Ooh, right scary. idea, not the right outcome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. Good to know. And then I have a, hopefully we can make this a speed round. I have a couple okay. questions from Julia, who's hearing conflicting info about pregnancy. So one thing she heard was you only need 200 more calories a day when you're pregnant. That sounds like too much of a blanket statement. What do you think? Yeah, right. Because that's like have one Snickers bar. Um, so again, right. it's not about the calories, right? It's about the quality of the food you eat. Worry less about the calories and more about the quality. I had a discussion with someone yesterday as a, as a great example of why quality food matters. You can eat more calories on a Mediterranean diet, unlimited amount. People ate more. Ended up losing weight compared to low-fat calorie restriction. So it's mm. all about the quality of food. Stop thinking about calories. That's like saying, oh, well, if I buy this car, I'll get this many miles per gallon. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Depends how you drive, auto maintenance, lots of other things. So forget calories. Think about quality. Cool. And then related to weight, so there's this conception that breastfeeding will help you lose the baby weight. Yeah. Well, obviously there's an increased metabolic demand, but don't starve yourself, right? Because then you're restricting your intake potentially of important nutrients and things to deliver to your baby. I could tell you a quick story on breast milk about the third most common component of human breast milk uh, are, is a certain type of oligosaccharide, which is a sugar starch. They're called HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. Uh, baby can't digest them, believe it or not. So why would your body spend all this energy to make this stuff that the baby can't even use for fuel? Turns out that it is a great fuel to see their gut with a certain type of bacteria that is important in the baby's immune function. So basically, you have to have the things to make the, that those types of uh, human milk oligosaccharides so that your baby can have a properly functioning immune system. So hmm. that's why it's, it's important. It's all connected. You know, it's all connected, yeah. Okay, and last one from Julia. Are there foods that will help you increase milk production? That I would defer to your OBGYN or, or the registered dietitian who, who specializes in that. That's a little bit out of my realm of uh, expertise. Uh, but again, you can't go wrong simply doing the quality foods. Mm -hmm. And I mean, your body will respond to the lactation stimulus because uh, part of that has to do with, you know, oxytocin feedback and hormones and things like that. So I'm going to punt that one to the OBGYN okay. folks. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Well, as we wrap up, is there any other tips or, you know, thoughts you want to share around this topic of fertility and pregnancy? I know it's like a huge topic, but any parting thoughts you want to share? Well, it, I would just say, you know, realize that what you do during pregnancy has a huge impact on the newborn. So, so often, we see moms who are still working, who are, you know, still busy and not eating very well, thinking, oh, you know, when I have my baby and I breastfeed, then, you know, I'm going to eat really well. So there's great breast milk and, you know, I'm feeding the nutrient. But obviously, as we've covered, a lot of things happen before then. So don't, don't discount that time pre and during pregnancy as important for your health as a mom because your your health is critical for your baby's health it's it's that simple such an important message as always thank you so much chef dr mike it's always so entertaining listening to you and i always learn so much so 
So appreciate you coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It's always so much fun to be with you, Jane. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for the great questions. Keep them coming. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time. 